0: Yeah, so again, the Ten Commandments, not the most appealing. Uh, it's not called the Ten Tips for Success. Uh, it's not the Ten Minute Abs, right? Uh, they're the Ten Commandments. And, you know, you have to think, like, why are, You know, who wants to learn rules? Right? We're all adults here. We're learning about rules. You know, for me, too, I thought a lot about this. Uh, before I began the series, I thought... Uh, you know, the Ten Commandments is one of those things that we have to do. You know, we're studying Exodus, and, you know, we're, we're in this series, so we have to do it. We all know it, we all keep it to a certain extent, and, um, you know, we're not that bad in keeping it. We don't murder, we don't steal. And uh, I thought to myself, you know what, I can just quickly go, and I can teach this. But the more I got into it, the more I studied uh, the Ten Commandments, I realized two things. First, I realized that the Ten Commandments have a breadth and a depth that I simply did not understand. And because of that, I was in violation of a lot of commandments. I was transgressing a lot of the Ten Commandments. Now, I know you're curious to know which ones. I'm not telling you. Uh, you know, a congregation loves hearing about how they're past their pastor sins but uh, I won't actually tell you the ones that I uh, were convicted of, but I realized that the Ten Commandments are just so much wider, so much deeper than I had originally thought. The second thing I realized in my study was this. Uh, The Ten Commandments reveals so much about God. It shows us how righteous He is. It shows us how holy He is. It shows us how good He is, and good not just in the neutral moral sense, but It shows us how good he is to us, his people. More than anything, the Ten Commandments show us how deeply committed God is to us. And so before we begin this series, uh, I want to at least instill in you some anticipation, uh, perhaps even some excitement. Uh, This series, if nothing, will show us how sinful we are, yet it will show how gracious and committed God is to us. So let's get right into it, the Ten Commandments. Um, This is the commandment in verse 3, the first one. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall have no other gods besides me. It's important that we understand the background of this commandment before we get into it, okay? Uh, Religion during this time, religion during the Exodus can be characterized by two things, okay? It was polytheistic, and it was tolerant. In other words, it was polytheistic in terms of people believed in many, many gods. There was no limit to the number of gods you could believe in, and there was a general spirit of tolerance. There was an openness to other gods. Now, some of you might be thinking, what's the point of having multiple gods? Isn't one god enough? Well, another thing that you have to know about this time was that gods, during this time, they were territorial. In other words, they were limited to a certain area, and they were specialized. They had had an expertise over one certain area of your life. So, for instance, if let's say there was a drought in the land and you needed rain, then you would go and offer sacrifices and worship to a god named Baal. Because he was the God of rain. If you you or your spouse were infertile and you needed to have a child, or let's say you just needed help in the area of love, you, you were really bad at love, you would go and offer sacrifices to a goddess named Estirith. If you needed grain, if there was a shortage of grain and the village was going hungry you would then go and offer sacrifices to a god named Dagon. And so we find here in this religious environment there was a plethora of gods, and depending on your needs, depending on your situation, depending on your circumstance, you would go and you would seek that god out. You know, years ago, I recall that the only place that my family and I, we shopped at, was a, was a place called Amazon. Okay? We shopped online. That's the only place where we shopped. It was fast, it was convenient, uh, it was simple. We did it right from our home. Uh, the Prime membership was only $50 back then, I believe. And I remember we bought everything on Amazon. But not too long ago, uh, with the help of this congregation, uh, I discovered Costco. And Costco changed my life. I realized that Costco is better than Amazon with respect to certain things. If you wanna buy things in bulk, like diapers or Clorox wipes, right? It's so much more cheaper, uh, it's more efficient to go to Costco and buy it wholesale. And so, not only was I a Prime member on Amazon, I became a Costco member. You know, I got the executive member, you know, I, bought, I got the credit card. I became a full-fledged member at Costco. Now, I would go back and forth between Costco and Amazon, depending on my needs. More recently, though, I discovered something new. It's a red boutique store named Target. <laughs> Target, otherwise known as Target. I realized, I know some of you guys are thinking... Did you just discover Target? You know, I know it's, it might be old news for you, but for me, it's really new. So please, you know, I, 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 family discovered Target, and I realized that under certain circumstances, Target is better than Costco and Amazon. For instance, if I need to buy something quickly, if I need something immediately, I can't wait two days, and I want to go in and out, I need to shop at Target. Because with Target, you can just go on your app, you can order the items, and you can go into the store and pick it up right at customer service. So if I just need to go in and out, I need something quick, Target is the place where I shop. And for those of you wondering, of course I got the red card, right? 5% off, who wouldn't? So right now, this is where I'm at. If I want to um, have a little more fun, if I have a little more time, Right? If I want to take my shopping cart around and you know, discover new products and maybe sample some foods, I would go to Costco. If I want to be in and out quickly, if I don't have time, I would shop at Target. And if I need something uh, that's a little more unique, a little more exotic, if I need books, if I need something that you know normal stores don't carry, I would shop on Amazon. So right now, depending on my circumstances and my situations, I would would switch back and forth between these three stores. Now, I know some people have been telling me, hey, you have to try Bed Bath, but I'm not there yet. Okay, So right now, I'm just going back and forth between these three stores. Now, I'm loyal to all three. Okay, I'm a card-carrying member to all three, literally. But depending on my need, depending on my situation, At that moment, I would go back and forth, back and forth. You know, religion was a lot like this. Depending on your circumstances, you would have a buffet of gods to choose from. And you would seek out the God who met your need at that moment. Now, if you find this practice of religion to be somewhat offensive, I I want you to think a little bit more about this. You know, this kind of religious system where you can just choose from a host of gods according to your needs, according to your desires, you know, this option of being able to choose which god you want to worship is actually, it's simple, it's convenient, and it seems to be automatic. You know, if this is the way in which you practice worship, you, you have to think about it. If this is the way in which you worship, right, and you serve gods, you actually don't have to make it a part of your everyday life. It's actually quite simple. When you need something, then you just go to that God and you follow whatever directions for sacrifice. You don't even have to have faith. You don't have to wonder or worry wondering, would this even work? Would this even come true? The people believe that it was automatic. And it actually made a lot of sense. If I can go and worship the God that I want at that moment, that means it didn't really interfere with your life. Your everyday life remained the same and you only went to that God when you needed it. It was simple, it was convenient, it was automatic, and you had options, you can choose. You know, surprisingly, I don't think that this is much different from the religious spirit of our day. You know, in our, in our day, we, it, the religious outlook is one that is polytheistic. It's one that is tolerance. You know, modern people don't ask, who is the true God? No, instead they ask, which God can help me with my present situation? People don't ask, who is the true living God? No, they ask, which God can meet the needs that I have right now? And as anything else, as with anything else, we want religion to be simple. We want religion to be convenient. We want it to be automatic. And we don't want it to interfere with our life. We only need it, or we only seek it out when we need it. You know, within this religious world, within this religious atmosphere, the first command that God gives on Mount Sinai is this. You shall have no other gods besides me. You know, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, God, he is redefining religious commitment. And he is expressing from the very beginning what he wants from his people. In other words, God, he is DTRing. He's saying, let's define this relationship right now. This is what I want Previously, religion was nothing more than a business relationship. It was, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. You do what I want, and I will do what you want. But here on Mount Sinai, with the Ten Commandments, we find God wanting something more. He's desiring something deeper. He is desiring something that is exclusive. What is that? Well, if we look at this verse, you shall have... No other gods before me. The verb that's used here, to have, is often used in the Bible to speak of marriage. So, the phrase, to get married, you know, the the phrase that we use in English, to get married, is literally in the Hebrew, to have a man, to have a woman. So, this possessive verb, to have, a lot of times in the Hebrew Bible connotes marriage. Here's what God is saying. You shall have no other gods. He's saying this. You and I now are entering into a relationship. We are entering into a marriage. And just like in a marriage, there is no room for a third party. So also now between you and me, there can be no other gods. It's just you and me now. You know, if you look at Jeremiah 31, um, Jeremiah 31, um, God, you know, the, through the prophet, he is uh, speaking back of the time of Exodus. And I want you to notice what he says. He says this The covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Though I was their husband. He is saying, on Mount Sinai, when they had created this covenant, it was one like marriage. You know, for God uh, during this time, during the time of the Exodus, and you know, maybe even during our time, for God to ask for absolute allegiance, for him to say, you have to be undividedly devoted to me may seem to be exhausting a bit much. You know, I'm sure there were people during that time saying, wait, God, what about the host of gods that we already have? Might i say, wait, God, I think you're asking for a little too much. But as God frames this commandment within the context of marriage, as he's defining the relationship, saying, no, it's one where it's just you and me. This command makes absolute sense. In fact, for God to have entered into a marriage relationship with this people, and to ask for anything else would be absurd. You know, Kevin DeYoung, who is a who is a pastor in North Carolina, he uh, actually brings this to life with this um, scenario, with this made up scenario, in one of his books. and uh, and I have it out here for you. And this is what I want you to, um, to follow. Imagine, imagine if a husband came home, okay, your husband came home, and he said this. He said, honey, it's so good to see you. I want to introduce someone who is very special to me. Now, don't get me wrong, you're special to me too. But, honey, I want you to know I've met someone else. She's lovely, and I'm going to spend some time with her I'm also going to spend a lot of time with you. I just want you to know that some nights I'm going to be with her instead. I think the two of you would really get along. You'll be great, great friends. You both mean so much to me." What should a wife say in that kind of a situation? Should she say, that's great. I'm honored that I can still be a part of your life. Hardly. What the wife would say is, no, it's either her or it's me. Make up your mind. And if the wife were to say that with a great deal of passion, would anyone think she's being cruel, proud, unfair, or intolerant? No. We would say that she's being the sort of wife that she ought to be. She has every right to be jealous. You know, we'd be concerned if she wasn't angry. Marriage is a relationship that demands forsaking all others. Friends, here in the Ten Commandments, with the first commandment, God, He is completely redefining what it means to be in a relationship with Him. Mount Sinai with all of its thunder and lightning, is not a scare tactic. Rather, it's a wedding ceremony. On this mountain, God and His people are entering into an exclusive relationship. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Simply put, God is saying this I will commit to you. You commit to me. I will be your God. You will be my people. Can we do this now? Can we do this? You know, if we take a step back, um, you know, I think this commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me, uh, can elicit two potential responses. I think one response is fear, and the other response is awe. First, fear. Fear. You know, for some of us, there is nothing that we are more afraid of than commitment. If God is saying, I will commit myself to you, you commit yourself to me. For some of us, that's a really scary proposition. You know, if God, you know, said to some of you, hey, listen, I will give myself wholly to you. You give yourself now wholly to me. I think some of us would be afraid of that. Maybe take a step back and say, wait, wait, God, you're taking it too fast. Let's slow down here. What do you mean holy? I'll give myself holy to you. I think some of us, this is a really scary thing. We are a people that's definitely afraid of commitment. Because by committing, it means that we lose our options. And there's nothing we prize more in society than options. About 15 years ago, uh, Patrick McGinnis, who was then a uh, business student, he's a businessman now, uh, he was the first one to actually coin the term FOMO, the fear of missing out. Recently, he did an interview with the New York Times, and he talks about how he came up with this term, the fear of missing out. And uh, he, he says this. When he was in business school, he says this. I noticed that my classmates, my classmates and I, we were always optimizing. We hedged. We lived in a world of maybes. And because of that, we were paralyzed at the prospect of actually committing to something out of fear that we might be choosing something that wasn't the absolute perfect option. You know, McGinnis, he noticed that all, everyone, no one was committing to anything because there was this fear. Once I commit, I'm going to lose all of my options. So he created fear of missing out. McGinnis also coined the term FOBO, F-O-B-O, and that's fear of better options. He said, because we live in this hyper-connected, this option-filled world, we're always thinking, is there a better option out there? For us to make one single decision, we obsessively research every possible option there is. And then when faced with the decision, there's always this fear, am I choosing the best one? You know, I understand, I am just like that. FOMO and FOBO are real things for me, too. You know, for example, when I have to buy a plane ticket, I do all the research I can. I go on Google Flights. I go on Hopper. I go on the American Express travel portal. I go on Chase's travel portal. And then I research the airlines and see is it better to buy in miles or in cash. I do all the research and look at all the options. Determine which, airline, which airport is best flying out of. What lounges are available. And after all of that research, I save the search, and I close my computer and open it up again the next day. You know, there is this fear, I think, that many of us have of committing to something. Thinking that if I commit, that is the end of me. Patrick McGinnis says, as a result, because we have FOMO, we have FOBO, he says, as a result, we have something called FODA. And I'm not making this up, F-O-D-A. He says, the fear of doing anything. We are paralyzed by our options because we're always seeking optimization, because we're looking for the perfect option for everything. It always results in indecision, it results in regret, and a lower level of happiness. You know, I think for us as people to hear this word, you shall have no other gods besides me, I think it's a scary proposition for some of us. What if I commit to God? What's going to happen to me? If I give myself wholly to God, what does that mean? Am I giving myself up? You know, if that's your position, if you are fearful of committing. I wanna draw your attention to, I think, what is the proper response to this commandment. Not fear, but awe. You know, I think so much of the focus of the first commandment is, uh, has been on the people receiving the commandment, right? It's, you shall have no other gods besides me. And then you wonder, yeah, can I really have no other gods? But I think the focus needs to be shifted Now, from you who is receiving it to the one who is actually giving it. Instead of thinking, can I commit? Can I really have no other gods? Think about the one who has already committed to you. God is saying, you shall have no other gods because for him, he has no other people. God has committed himself first to us. And now he's saying, will you commit to me? I know this is a really, really silly analogy, but imagine if, imagine if Beyonce, you know, of all the artists, imagine if Beyonce came up to you and she said, listen, I will be an artist that's committed to you. I will only perform in the cities that you're at I will give you front row tickets, I will tweet at you, you know, uh, we'll take pictures together, you know, I'll, I'll write songs about you. I will be wholly committed to you as an artist. What I want you to do is you can't have, you can't follow any other artist. You must only be a fan of me. If Beyonce were to say that, even if you don't like Beyonce, that level of access, that level of exclusivity if she were to offer that, many of us would say, yes, Queen Bee, yes, I'll do it. Yes, whatever you ask, I will do it. You commit yourself to me that much, Beyonce? I'll do it. You know, our lack of commitment is most of the time driven by our own narcissism. This thought that we can do better. But if we consider at least in this commandment, consider the one who has called you into covenant relationship. If we think about how much God has committed himself to us, the focus is not, oh, can I commit? But the focus is, oh, God has committed. You know, we um, talked about uh, the first commandment and how it's best understood against the backdrop of marriage. You know what marriage is? You know, if we can really boil down marriage to one thing, marriage is simply a promise, right? It's a commitment. I mean, consider the the culmination of a wedding ceremony is the vow, right? And if you think about what a vow is, or at least a wedding vow, you know, I have it up for you just as as a reminder. This is just a sample. But if you think about what a wedding vow is, you know, we think of weddings to be romantic, but the wedding vow is actually not romantic at all. I mean, if you look, I take you to, my, to be my lawful wife or my lawful husband, okay? There's no emotion here. It's legal. It's a legal contract. It's not romantic. And then the, the vow continues. To hold you from this day forward, to keep you, to love you, so on and so forth, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do us apart. You know, if you look at this wedding vow, you know, it's actually, it's morbid. They're talking about death here. Till death do us part. You know, wedding vows, it's actually sacrificial. It's legal. You talk about worst-case scenarios. In sickness, for poor, forsaking all others, I will be with you. There's nothing romantic about a wedding vow. It's sacrificial. It's morbid. It's worst-case scenarios. But this is the extent to which God has committed himself to us. He has forsaken everything for God, he has given to us his son. God forsook his son to remain faithful to his covenant, to his commitment to us. Just as in a wedding or a marriage, he has given us everything to the point where his eternal kingdom He has made us property owners of that. We have signed our name on everything that God owns. He called us to be co-heirs with him. His kingdom, he has given to us as an inheritance. It is a legal marriage. Friends, I want us to rethink this commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. The first commandment is not about what God wants from us. It's about how much he wants us. This commandment is showing us that God wants to be the sole subject of all of your worship, of all of your devotion, of everything. He wants you always in your entirety. So, when you're joyful, he wants you to run to him like a child. When you're sorrowful, he wants you to come to him so that he can bear your burdens. When you're angry, he wants you to come to him in worship and in trust. When you're hurt, he wants you to come to him so that he can heal you when you're confused. He desires you so that he can lead you. He wants everything, all of you, at all times. He wants your worship in all types of circumstances, with all types of emotions. The first command tells us how much God desires us. If you look at the Psalms, You'll find a vast array of emotions. The psalmist goes before God in praise, in worship, in adoration, in thanksgiving, in hurt, in betrayal. He goes before God in all circumstances. And you know what God says? He doesn't say, hey, you're you're a little overbearing. Okay, you're a little too emotional now. And God doesn't take a step back and say, okay, when you're ready, we'll talk. He says, I want that. I want you in all moments, in all circumstances. I want to be the subject of your worship all the time. You know, the first commandment, we should not be thinking, God, you are an exhausting God. You're saying I can't have no other gods besides you? No, that's not what we should be thinking. Rather, we should be thinking, God, you're not exhausted by me. You're not exhausted by me every single time I come to you? And it's no. first commandment shows us how much God deeply desires us. The first command demands our total devotion because God has already given us everything. Will you not give it? You know, in China recently... Um, The persecution of Christians have have gone up. Persecution of Christians in uh, China has been growing recently, and you might have seen some things in the news. Now, if you know anything about China and the communist government, uh, China allows Christianity. They allow the practice of Christianity as long as it supports the social efforts of the Chinese government. In fact, that's their stance on all religions. You can practice any religion you want as long as it is in service of the government. Uh, The president of China, Xi Jinping, uh, who looks to be the president for the rest of his life, um, he actually started cracking down on Christians a little more. And um, more recently, um, Chinese officials have been going to Christian churches And in Christian churches, um, there are some churches where they actually uh, have the Ten Commandments posted. They have it up. Just like, you know, we would find the Ten Commandments at uh, the Supreme Court or some of uh, the courts here. And the Chinese government actually started erasing the First Commandment. They said, all the other commandments are okay, but you need to take the first one out. And their thinking is this. As long as we take the first commandment out, Christians can remain to be good moral people, yet they can also serve and worship the communist government. You see, the Chinese government understands how important this first commandment is. It's the difference between honoring Jesus like one honors Gautama Buddha or worshiping Jesus as God. That's the difference. The first commandment is the difference between Christians just being moral people and Christians being devoted worshipers. Everything hinges on this first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. I have committed myself to you. Will you now trust me and give me everything? I want to just close with this last illustration. It's an illustration from the Bible. In 2 Kings, we find a man named Naaman. And Naaman is the general of a very, very powerful army of a nation called Syria. Now, Naaman was a very, very powerful man. He had everything at his disposal, but he had leprosy. Now, Naaman went around to all the gods of the land to try to get healed. But supposedly there was no God who had specialized in leprosy. So Naaman was sick. But one day he hears about a God in Israel. And he hears that this God in Israel named Yahweh can heal him of leprosy. This God has the power to heal leprosy. And so what does he do? He says, okay, I'm going to go seek that God out. And so he goes with his army, his horses, his carriage... And he brings a caravan, a boatload of gold and silver, because that was a normal practice of the day, right? If I need something from this God, I'm going to give him all of this in return. So Naaman goes. Now, he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. He wasn't trying to switch his allegiance. He was just adding another God to the collection of gods that he was in business with. But he goes and he gets healed. He gets healed in this miraculous way. And then Naaman says, Look at all this gold and silver and clothing that I have brought. I want you to now take this. And you know what the prophet does? You know what God does? He says, This, I don't want any of it. And at that point, Naaman is confused in fact he's overwhelmed you say wait this is not how we do religion i need something and i have something to give to you you give it to me and i will give you all of this this is the way religion is done and yahweh says no i don't want any of that take it i'm going to heal you because i am merciful and I'm going to give grace to you. Not because you deserve it, not because you demand it, not because you can afford it, but I'm just going to give it to you. And that's when Naaman is overwhelmed. He says, wait, what kind of God is this who would give me something out of sheer grace? And you know what Naaman confesses after he receives that? He says this, now I know that there is no other God except Yahweh. Naaman commits to God because he understood how much God has committed to him. Friends, this is what the first commandment is about. For those of you wavering, wondering, should I go all in or not? Should I keep one foot in, one foot out? I want you to focus your attention not upon what you have to commit but upon how much God has committed to you. And may we respond likewise. Let's pray.